Friends, I've spent the last few months praying and dreaming about where to start today and where to start these first few weeks of change and difference. And through many conversations with Jesus, uh, he led me back to the simplest places, to stories and parables. And so in July, that's where we're going to be. The word parable literally means something cast alongside another thing to clarify it. And the Gospels feature many things called parables, but the writers of the Gospels don't always agree on what a parable is all the time. Scholars say that parables are naturally obscure, and so they need explanation. Another scholar disagrees and says, like an explained joke, an explained parable violates the listener. Rather, one needs to let it stand alone and do its work on and in the hearer. But that's the beauty of the parable, isn't it? It hits us each a little bit differently, whether it's allegory or moral or metaphor or political or economic, poetic. Parables are open-ended. They confront, they, they teach, they tease, they direct, they answer. Malcolm Muggeridge goes a step farther saying, every happening in the world, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us and the art of life is to get the message. Now, a large part of the teachings of Jesus come through stories, come through parables, because I think Jesus knows that humans enjoy a story. See you, Crosby. It was good while it lasted. Now, we learn better with a story. Stories engage our attention. They help us understand others. They help us cope. They help us remember and imagine. Jonathan Gottschall says that we are, as a species, addicted to story. And his proof is that even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. We love them. We love stories and parables because we need to engage and participate in order to understand and learn, right? Take, for example, modern-day parables, or as I like to call them, uh, Disney-Pixar movies. I could tell you a simple truth that it is okay to feel more than one emotion at once, or I could tell you to go watch the movie Inside Out. <laughs> and I think Inside Out would do a better job of communicating that truth to you. I, I could tell you that the very things that we fear are often not that scary once we open ourselves up and get to know them, or I could tell you to just go watch Monsters, Inc. I think it's going to mean more. I could tell you that moving on and change and transition are all parts of life. Or I could tell you to watch Toy Story 3. To see that simple truth played out, I think Woody and Buzz might help that truth sink a little bit deeper than my words while also ripping your heart out and stomping on it endlessly. We love stories. And this is why Jesus is brilliant. He knows that in a story, in a parable, you can hear things you've never heard before. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is in a storytelling mood. Luke tells us that the tax collectors and sinners are pressing in to hear him. They're desperately trying to listen to more of what he has to say. They want some stories. And do you know who is not happy about what Jesus has to say? Anybody? <laughs> bless you, Pharisees, scribes, the status quo folks, and they level an accusation against Jesus. Do you know what their accusation is? This is good. It's not, Jesus, why don't you quit telling stories and actually say something? Their accusation is not, listen to that Jesus, 
thinking he's more holy than we are. No, their accusation is simple, and it's this. You ready? This man receives sinners, and he even eats with them. Uh Uh-oh. But do you know what Jesus' response is? Does he deny it? Does he try to reason with them? Does he say, that's not the whole picture. Come to my office, we'll talk about it. No, he actually answers their accusation by describing the incredible lengths he will go to receive a sinner. (laughs) He accepts their accusation with honors. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth, masters in receiving sinners, summa cum laude, and he does so with stories. So one day, he says, while grazing, a sheep takes its eye off the shepherd, eats a little bit more and a little bit more, and the next time he looks up, well, the whole flock is gone. And this sheep is left wandering, lost from the flock. Of course, not all who wander are lost, but this sheep is wandering and lost. And the shepherd leaves the whole flock to search out this one hopeless wanderer. And the lost is found. The shepherd leaves the 99 to find the what? One. But Jesus isn't done yet. He begins again. One day, a lady loses a coin, slips through her fingers, so she does everything she can to find it. She searches high and low and throughout the house, and then she finds it. And she rejoices, for she has found that which was lost. The end? Nope. Not done yet. Jesus tells another story, the one we have named the parable of the prodigal son, The lost son, a favorite preacher of mine, breaks this story actually into two. And he says you have the parable of the son lost in the far country, but you also have the parable of the son lost at home. To me, that's more accurate. I've known it to be true in my life that I don't have to leave home to get lost. So to this last story, a man has two sons, and the younger says to his father, Dad, People live too long these days. Average life expectancy right now is 35. That's too long. I don't want to wait that long. I'd like to have whatever you're planning on leaving me right now. Please. (laughs) Of course, this is unexpected, as a child usually waits for the parent to die in order to acquire the inheritance, and I imagine it causes the crowd to cringe a little. You can hear them kind of thinking, I don't know about that. It feels a little bit like a stretch. But the father does as requested, and soon after, the son takes the inheritance and goes to a far-off country, and he lives a lavish, larger-than-life kind of existence, flaunting his wealth and spending all of it. Morgan Housel, author of The Psychology of Money, says this, Spending money to show people how much money you have is the fastest way to have less money. And this son lives by her words. That's why we call him the prodigal. Did you know prodigal means extravagantly wasteful? Not regular wasteful, really big wasteful. (laughs) And to make matters more interesting, after this prodigal son wastes his inheritance, what happens? A famine sweeps through the land and the son has nothing. He doesn't even have any food. It's a riches to rags story. And it's at this moment when many of us would say, well, that's what you get. Karma, you reap what you sow, you get what you deserve, what goes around, comes around, comes around. This son is now at rock bottom feeding pigs, and when he's hungry enough to desire the slop that he is feeding the pigs, 
That's when he comes to his senses. He realizes that actually he might have a shot. He might have a shot at eating some regular food if he goes back to his father and begs his dad, make me a servant in this household. That, of course, would be a magnificent mercy to this disrespectful son. That would be a kind of grace. But we know the son doesn't get what he deserves. The son makes his way home, and his father, who's keeping watch, sees him in the distance and is moved with compassion. The Greek says that he's literally moved with compassion, the kind of compassion that you feel on your insides. The father feels it deep, and he runs, and he wraps his arms around his son, embraces him, kisses him. The son says, Dad, stop, please. I've sinned against you. I've done great harm. I'm shameful. I deserve to never be called your son again. And the father is not even listening. He doesn't even address it. He orders for the party to start. For my son was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. This can't be what happens, though. This isn't what the son deserves. This isn't what should happen, but it is. And the father throws the most prodigal, the most extravagantly wasteful party of all for his long lost son. That's kind of the point, I guess, or at least one of them, that the father is actually the prodigal. The father is wasteful. The father is reckless in his love and mercy. The father's grace doesn't operate according to fairness or our expectations, or our current customs. The Father is the one who cares not for things, or for inheritance, or for money, or for cultural norms. The Father cares more for the relationship. And that's it. That's grace. And it's not fair. And that's exactly why the older son is angry. He's not getting what he deserves. This isn't fair. After all, I'm the one who stuck around. I'm the one who worked hard. I didn't insult you, Dad. I know what should have happened. He deserves the fair treatment. If only the father would have consulted me first. The son is lost in a different way. And he says to his dad, you can't do this. I've been here the whole time doing this work and for what? And the father listens. And he looks his older son in the the eyes and says, you have always been with me. And that is a gift. But don't you understand? We thought your brother was a goner. We thought he was somewhere far away, lying dead in a ditch, lost forever, but he's not. He's alive. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what we certainly expected to be the case and how hope and life and grace have shattered those expectations. And the father says, I can only repay that. I can only repay God with celebration and mercy and goodness and thankfulness and extravagance. There is only one way to respond. And so Jesus leaves it there. It's a mic drop. Doesn't need to say any more. And all of this, by the way, everybody, all of this, this magnificent story, all of this beauty and conflict and hope The story of the brother lost far away and the story of the brother lost at home, not to mention the story of the lost sheep 
and the lost coin, they all seek to answer one accusation by the legalists who can't stand Jesus. And the accusation is this, this man receives sinners. And Jesus' answer is simple, you better believe it. I've always wondered why the legalists get offended, why the teachers and Pharisees are so offended by grace. How can people be offended by that? When Jesus finishes the story, everybody in the sanctuary should be jumping up and down. Because that means, that means something for us, for me, for you. Why would this story offend anyone? And I could think of two reasons. First, maybe it's, maybe it's the party that gets people. I can picture the scribe saying, okay, hold on, sure, the younger son can return home. Our religion has a way to restore people to the community, but we can't throw a party. We have to kind of act sad about it. We have to clothe ourselves in sackcloth and ashes and tears and guilt, the gift that keeps on giving. Nowhere in the law does it say that we need to throw a party with music and dancing and good food and new clothes. After all, a party might just cancel the seriousness of sin. So we have to be serious about it. Maybe maybe that's what offends people. Or maybe it just has to do with grace. Maybe that's the real offender. In a society that acts more competitive than cooperative, where there have to be winners and losers, Jesus' story makes no sense. Jew or Gentile, poor or rich, saint or sinner, publican or Pharisee, older son or younger son, Jesus' parable makes no sense because for Jesus' accusers to accept one son, surely you have to reject the other. If you accept the sinner, you have to reject the other. Of course, what they can't see is that the love of a sinner does not negate at all the love of the other, the love of the Pharisee or the scribe. For the father in the story had two sons, and he loved both. He went out to both. He was generous to both. Perhaps it really is difficult not to be offended by a grace that loves both sons. Marilyn Robinson says, there is no justice in love, no proportion in it, and there need not be because in any specific instance, it is only a glimpse or parable of an embracing, incomprehensible reality. It makes no sense at all because it is the eternal breaking in on the temporal. Friends, this is the good news. Jesus receives sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and scribes. Jesus receives legalists and libertines. Jesus receives those who wasted their inheritance extravagantly and those who have wasted it quietly. Jesus receives those lost in the distance and Jesus receives those lost at home. Jesus receives you and Jesus receives me and it doesn't make sense. Philip Yancey says the gospel is not at all what we would come up with on our own and thank God for that. It's not fair, it's not what we expect, it's not what we deserve, but that's grace. This man, Jesus, receives sinners. I got one last thing and I'm through. A couple of weeks ago, we moved into a new house not far from here. Since then, we've been blessed by so many of you bringing us meals and cards and visiting. 
I told Adair the other day, it's impossible to repay the kindness you've shown us, but we can try. <laughs> this past Thursday evening, Adair and I invited Charles and Mickey Robinson over to our home to bless our house. I don't know if you know this, but the United Methodists have a service of blessing for homes. It's beautiful. So Charles and Mickey came over. We prayed together. Mickey read wonderful scripture passages, and Charles' closing prayer over our home went like this. Eternal God, bless this home, which is not only a dwelling, but a symbol to us of God's loving care and of our life together as the family of Christ. Let your love rest upon it and your promised presence be manifest in it. May the members of this household grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may their home be a place of welcome and love and grace to all. And now that I think about it, it sounds an awful lot like Charles asked God to turn our house into a home that receives sinners. Friends, over the next few months, you'll probably hear me say this a lot. I know you have expectations of me as your new senior pastor. I realize that. I know you have hopes and dreams for this church. I know that you've got ideas and concerns and you've got expectation. I get it. But please know this. I have expectations for you too. I have hopes and dreams for you too. I have ideas and concerns for you too. I have great expectations for this church. But my greatest hope and expectation for you for Noonan First United Methodist Church is that this would be a community, a church, a home that receives sinners and even eats with them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.